connected and gotta love YouTube. All right, welcome to episode 21 of Haven of Horror. We have another guest star this week, uh, David Lynch, uh, Connor Nielsen. Wow. Uh, I've been working on that joke all <laughs> But uh, welcome to the show, man. It's always good to have you on. Ideas are like fish, okay? You catch them, all right? Yeah, no, I'm glad to be here. Really happy to talk about uh, a new movie that I finally got to watch for the first time and one of my favorite horror movies. So uh, really he excited to hear your guys' uh, thoughts as well. Yeah, I'm really excited that I finally watched this because I'm a big West Craven fan, of course. Nightmare and Scream are like two of the best slasher films I've ever made. Uh, and I've seen Hills Have Ice a couple times. Uh, but we're going to do it a little differently today. First, to start off, we're doing next week. Uh, Nick and I have been talking, and we decided to do a couple of bad movies. So I figured, well, if we're going to do bad movies, we're going to do terrible, awful, hate this exist movies. We're going to do the 2005 remake of The Fog, and 2008's Dawn, or Day of the Dead. Uh, should be a lot of fun, and still Milton quits, because the movies are terrible. The look well, of this place says it all. Well, we've had some, a lot of good ones, so we have to put some variety in the show, right? So I have to ask, because right before we started, you said you thought you knew what they were. Were you close? I I knew that you were probably going to pick the Day of the Dead remake. I did not think you were going to pick the remake for the fall. Um, okay. Uh, so you can actually blame, you can blame Connor for that one, because we watched People Under the Stairs, if you didn't catch the title, which has been written. They got me to thinking about the Day of the Dead remake, which also has been. So I was like, you know what? We should do that one. Because we covered we just covered Day of the Dead a couple of weeks ago. And, uh but yeah, so we always we always take a, a few minutes whenever we have a new guest start on. Uh what are some of your favorite just horror films in the horror genre? Like how do you feel about that genre? So horror, um it's not typically a genre that I want I see a lot of films that I love. But when I do find ones that I love, they become some of my all-time yeah. favorites, and I go back to them more often than I go to a lot of other movies. Uh, so I typically kind of like the spectacle horror movies where there's like a sort of bigness to them. I like Cloverfield quite a bit. Um, I really like uh, the original Godzilla where uh, there's it's like you know something's happening where it's, it's almost like a an event is happening and uh, you can like feel like the terror in the air. There's almost like a spectacle to it. Um, and then I also like pretty goofy horror movies as well. Like we're going to talk about the people under the stairs. It's basically a comedy. It's like an Amblin entertainment, like Spielberg kind of like, it's like the ghetto Goonies kind of. And then, you know, there's like cannibalism, disembowelment, you know, in like blood and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I also really like, uh, the original Dawn of the Dead, I think, is probably the greatest horror movie that's ever been made. Um, this as far as, you know, the story it tells and the way it uses its genre to, like, elevate the material. Like, I think it is so good. It's it's funny. It's sad. It's kind of heartbreaking, but it's heartwarming. It's just everything you could want in a movie is in the original Dawn of the Dead. Um, but I think my favorite horror movie is probably... Um, uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which is David Lynch's uh, prequel to his uh, TV show. And that's a that's a movie that is just so sad. It's probably the saddest horror movie I've seen. Um, and the way that movie, because it, 
David Lynch, whenever he makes a movie, there's like an element of irony that's kind of in it. Uh, there's a sort of, you kind of look at it where you know a little bit more than the characters and the style sort of has a little bit of distance between the characters and, um, uh, you know, exactly what they're feeling. You have a little bit more knowledge than they do. Um, and I know some people feel like that kind of disengages them from the story. I think the atmosphere does a really good job of keeping one engaged. But that's one where you are just inside of Laura Palmer's head for the whole movie, most of the movie. The first half an hour is a comedy bit. But after that, you, you, like, you're just with her. There's, you, there's not a scene without her. You're just with her the whole time as you're, you're going through all of the trauma she's going through. And it's heartbreaking and terrifying. Um, and so those are, like, so there's a bit of, like, a kind of a, gambit of horror i like i like the really personal hells that people are in but i also really like the fun stuff um i forgot to mention the lost boys that's considered a um a a horror movie but the lost boys is just something i've seen in like four times in the last year alone um so i i, I like very colorful very fast-paced uh generally unpredictable horror movies and uh you know, that's, that's, I guess, my generally my avenue with that genre. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, Dawn of the Dead, I consider my second favorite ever. Uh, first, of course, is Evil Dead 2, the masterpiece. Like. <laughs> and I forgot to mention the Evil Dead movies. I've only seen the first two. I've not seen Army of Darkness in the show, but like the way Raimi moves that camera is just so energetic. And you're just like, you're in it, you're on the edge oh, of your yeah. seat. It's so entertaining. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like I like both spectrums. Uh, about the only genre and sub genre within the grand region, like typically, is possession. They tend to be the same thing. Um, Hereditary being the exception, I love that. Hereditary is awesome, uh, but you're right. No, like possession movies. Uh, maybe it's because they've been ruling the genre for like the last decade or something, but. Oh my god, if I have to watch another scene of some dumbass slowly walking their ass down a hallway, I'm gonna shoot myself. Like, it's. <laughs> I'm so, like, did you guys see The Curse of La Llorona? Where it was no, like, I have not. I, I like to avoid stuff like that. It's like, there's a, I, I timed it. There's a two and a half minute scene where you're just following Linda Cardellini around your house, and she's like, what was that noise? Oh my god, the light turned off. Oh my god. I'm like, Jesus, let's get this going. And the what demons are you? always. Dumb as a yeah. box rocks. So. Yeah, we're about to get like another movie about possession, but it's like based on a true story of a court case where someone tried to argue that. It's like, yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's already out. And it's terrible. You're talking about the Conjuring Three, and actually, uh, that is that really did happen. It's just not the way the movie treats. Well, that's what I mean, essentially. But that's yeah. how all those Conjuring films are. Yeah. Like, they all... I, I want to go back and watch the first two, because I know Conjuring said at least they're fun. Like, he enjoys the film a lot, but the third one, I thought, oh, God, that was the worst movie I've seen this year. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm nervous about yeah. that third one, man. Because I do like the first two. The first one in particular, I have a, a very fond like memories of that, um, where that came out right after I graduated high school. And for anyone who might be younger watching or listening to this, when you graduate high school, that summer afterwards is like the best summer ever. You're like invincible. Um, and uh, I went to Lake Tahoe and we had to go into like the back of this really run down casino. My mom called it like the, 
the place where dreams go to die in Lake Tahoe. And they had like this movie theater in the back with like pale lighting and narrow hallways and minimal staff that clearly didn't want to be there with like, you know, gaunt faces. And you, we sat down in the auditorium, my brother and I, and there was like tiles missing from the ceiling and a big water stain on the wall and a big family that just came and sat down behind us. At one point, like the dad got a phone, was like, y'all watched a horror movie, what's the big deal? Um, and that was just like a great time. And like, I was, a, I, I didn't grow up watching horror movies. So like, I, you know, the first one I actually saw in the theater was uh, The Woman in Black, which like, scared the bejesus out of me because I didn't know any of the rules. I didn't know what the tricks were. And this was, I'd only seen like a handful of horror movies in the interim. So when I went to go see The Conjuring, it was just like, oh, whoa, whoa, okay, that was spooky. It didn't like scare me, but it was such a fun ride to go along with it. And I think James Wan is really kind of good at making that, like entertainment horror that's not going to stay with you like something like hereditary will john but um it's you know it's flashy it gets the job done and i have like those fond memories attached to the first two anyways but i'm really nervous about the third one because that same guy made la llorona and that movie's a pile of crap i mean the third one sucks uh (laughs) connor will block block me immediately when i give those uh first two like a one star review John, no. John, we've been we've been through the nostalgia critic trilogy together. <laughs> yeah. all right? We're like war brothers, okay? <laughs> all right, so we're gonna we don't really do these by order release date, so we're gonna start with the Hills Have Eyes. Uh, so Milton, tell us a little bit about Wes Craven's Hills Have Eyes. I'd like to pass on this because uh, I think I might have forgotten quite a bit of it, unfortunately. Um, I'll try my best to at least describe the the beginning. Um, A group of campers, no, sorry, not campers, I should say campers. A group of family that wants to go to California, essentially, through an RV, decide to very poorly ignore the warnings of an older man who knows the area and decides to enter a bomb testing range for the military, especially the Air Force. And naturally, of course, they go off course, their RV gets stuck, and the entire family has to deal with mutants that, you know, want to kill them because they're cannibals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you say you don't remember a lot of it, but I mean, that's that's the premise of the movie. That's all I want. <laughs> the reason why is because I've forgotten the ending because, admittedly, I, I don't want to go down on this movie too much, but I did sleep through a bit of the end. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I I think this is a decent movie. I think I think the premise is held back by when it came out. Uh, not to say that like the movie doesn't does do the best it can, but in the seventies, for the kind of story they're telling, roots that they make these people out to be, I just don't think audience people are ready to have that kind of thing for themselves. Uh, I like a couple of them, especially uh the one the guy that's like on the poster. I can't remember any of their names. Terrible name. Uh, but I like that actor a lot. I like the one guy that's got like a split down his nose. Uh, some really good makeup there. But some of them, like, you start out with a little girl that's like trying to run away. And they're like, oh, you know, you're a mutant. And like, she's just like dirty. Like, what's her, how is she a mutant? Like, what? Uh, so, since this is your first time viewing it, what do you think of the Hills Um, I quite liked it. Um, I had a similar experience watching it um, to when I watched uh, The People Under the Stairs for the first time, uh, which was 
you know, it starts off, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, you got the premise, and there's a few of, like, the, the horror scenes, and I'm like, okay, this, I've seen this before, okay, we're gonna kill a couple minutes watching people walk around, okay, whatever, um, but once the ball got rolling, I actually found it to be quite entertaining, and the second half in particular, uh, I found it to be, like, A-plus uh, bad taste, like, it is, like, sleazy, and so kind of nasty and like that whole sequence where um are we going to spoilers do, do we do we is that cool yeah um, we, can, we can enter into these at any time okay when they steal the baby that whole sequence was like like wickedly entertaining in a like in a really kind of sleazy gross way and uh in the way it's shot is almost like a snuff film because that's where i feel like the low budget i think really started to add to the experience of watching it and um i like and so by the time i got to the end of it i was like kind of picking up on some sort of like the foreshadowing they were doing with like the dogs and um i i thought that uh, it, it was actually pretty satisfying in the end so i'd actually give it a pretty solid thumbs up i liked it quite a bit yeah uh I, i'm with you i love part of me loves just those like sleazy 70s horror they they have a feeling that can't be uh like done again. Because movies to now nowadays are just like oh you know we have no money and here's like two dollar DVI. It's all shot on digital. Which is yeah, definitely very different. Uh, this movie was only made for anywhere three hundred fifty to seven hundred thousand dollars. It's crazy. And that's the budget. That's around the budget like that first thing. And I don't remember. I think this might be Wes Craven's. No, this is not Wes Craven's first movie. This is his second and third. He did uh, The Last House on the Left. They're going to talk about it a little bit because I was getting some of those vibes, a less serious vibe to there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is classic. Just, you know, we take a simple premise. We have no money. <laughs> uh, we're going to just do what the hell are you <laughs> Uh, we're just gonna, you know, make make a movie. Uh, there's some horrifying stuff, and you're like, I forgot about the crucifixion scene, and I could not believe that was like in a seventies seventies movie, especially like pre Dawn of the Dead, because even the Dawn of the Dead scene before, I think it's purposely made to like, look as good as could be, because it was the seventies. They had to wait, you know, until the eighties. But the special effects hold up. Other than I get like I said, the mutants, they look like mutants other than the one guy that's got like the it's like somebody just like cut his skin open or something. Um, yeah, I think the backstory with that was like he got hit in the face with a tire iron by his dad. Oh that's like, right. Yeah, he uh, I think he's the first one, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um based on what the old man was saying. Yeah, because that's what the old man is like rambling about. My favorite exchange in that movie is when the cop, the the dad, who's like an awful human being in this movie, <laughs> he like goes to the police station to, uh, or not the police station, the gas station looking for help, and he finds the guy like trying to hang himself, and he's like, "Oh, I thought you were, so I thought you were like in a trigger or something." He's like, "So you tried to hang yourself?" It is a pretty funny exchange. Just like, why would your response be as soon as I come into this building? 
I think uh, he said he thought it was um, Papa Jupiter coming to get him, so he would yeah. rather hang himself than deal with him. But it's it's a really funny exchange. That yeah. was his second response. His first one was because he's kind of like black, like because he's still trying to hide the existence of me. So he's like, "Oh, I thought you were an intruder or something." Oh like, yeah. What? Um, that guy made me laugh. Like his, he's like the first character we see, and he's just like. Hmm old man just like throwing out expletives <laughs> and like oh crap and he's like trying to drink he's like run out of uh, alcohol to drink and everything that that got a good laugh out of me yeah he reminded me of uh i know you haven't seen like i think but in friday the 13th part six one of the main one of the characters that we call up for a while is like uh like the, the undertaker of this graveyard and he's like an old man that just kind of mumbles to himself and just like drinking and that movie is that movie is almost like a promo too it's very self-aware horror so i and i've always wondered now i'm wondering you know if they're kind of reference referencing that because we get a couple other like west crane references in that. Oh, uh, so i was cracking up because it just reminded me of that's that movie <laughs> um yeah i uh so one thing i took note of was like the actors in this uh you know for you know a no budget movie it's not like the only actor who went on to be in more than like 12 projects total was uh, the mutant that's on the poster, the, the bald guy, I think his name is Pluto. Um, he's been in other stuff, but everybody looks like somebody else. And when it was like doing the cast, it was like, I thought it said with James Whitmore. And I was like, oh my, they got James Whitmore in this? He's from, you know, Planet of the Apes, Shawshank Redemption. Like, that dude's amazing. They got him. That's great. And then, like, uh, the, the, the leader of the mutants shows up, and, I, and it looked kind of like a young James Whitmore. And then I was looking him up, and I'm like, I can't believe he was in uh, uh, Hills Have Eyes. And it's James Whitworth. It's a <laughs> very similar but different name. And uh, I was like, oh, he kind of does look like James Whitmore, but he also kind of looks like Dennis Hopper. He also kind of looks like the bad guy from the first Mad Max movie. <laughs> he kind of has oh, yeah. some big resemblance to other people. Um, but I thought that yeah. the, uh, the husband of one of the daughters looked like what Nick Cage would look like in the next decade. And I thought that the 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 brother, the kind of Luke Skywalker looking kid, looked a lot like proto Chris Pine. Like Chris Pine in high school with like his eyes and his brow and his chin and stuff. And it was just kind of funny. And then the blonde chick looked a lot like Sybil Shepard, uh, who I think they probably cast because she looked like Sybil Shepard. So you're talking about the young. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. yeah the younger. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, also need to be noted. D Wallace. Yes. Uh, yeah. Who will forever just be Elliot's mom's PT. Eighties mom. Yeah. Geez. Yeah. Eighties uh, Gremlins, this. Uh, funnily enough, uh, the two like biggest names, well, the guy on the poster whose name we gave, uh, and D. Wallace also would later be in Rob Zombie films uh, because, really? of course, Rob Zombie. Yeah, so Rob Zombie, of course, loves to take those seventies and eighties horror icons that aren't making any work anymore. Like here, I've got a movie. Uh, D. Wallace plays a witch in Lords of Salem. And uh, Michael Berryman, that's his name, uh, of course, claims that plays Tiny. You know, get it? He's tall, but. In House of Thousand Corpses and Devil's Winter. Okay, cool. 
That, yeah, uh, for whatever reason, I thought the actor's name was Lorenzo, but then I realized that the guy who plays that role in uh, the remake has also been in a lot of stuff. Um, mm. He was in Twin Peaks season three, and he played a character named Lorenzo in that. So I feel like my mind just all of a sudden was forgetting which name associated with what actor in what movie. Yeah. The uh, my favorite part of the remake is that they got Ted uh, Ted Levine, I think his name was. Yeah, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs to play the dad, the cop dad. Oh, that's great. great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, this is like like we mentioned before, brutal for a seventy. You've got like a crucifixion scene, and like they actually show them like pounding the the wood stake into the hands, and just like oh, God, that's kind of painful. They burn him alive, of course. I was surprised they killed Dee Wallace because I would have thought in a traditional movie he's the main character, right? Like mm-hmm. he's going after her, her, her baby and trying to save him, but it's the dad instead. I think that was an interesting choice. Uh, this movie, of course, also spawned I think almost, almost a subgenre of horror about like cannibalistic mutants in isolated places. Because you got this, you got Wrong Turn, all like six hundred of those things. <laughs> I think I saw a Blu-ray combo pack at Best Buy that was like wrong turn a one through seven <laughs> just on the on the cover. Yeah, and at, like most franchises, that first one's the only one worth watching. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, oh, sorry. What were you saying? Oh no, go ahead. I was just gonna say uh, it was kind of neat because I've actually driven through the Nevada desert before, and. So it was kind of neat to see uh, the way they utilize the location um, and how isolated it feels. Like early on when uh, Luke Skywalker, Chris Pine guy goes out looking for one of the dogs, uh, you know, that scene is one of those scenes that it typically like kind of annoys me in a horror movie where it's somebody calling somebody's name as they walk around for a few minutes, you know, looking for somebody or hearing a noise. But the way the cinematography does, you know, they're using long lenses and they'll like zoom out and you see how big the hills are and how small the people are and it does sort of add to that sense of isolation which i thought was pretty cool yeah well and i was right this is his second film uh interesting that because i was just reading a little bit of the development of this movie raymond didn't want to do like just horror he found the genre like he was training uh but nobody would like pay him to make anything but a horror movie because uh, he only he only had one film to his last house left, which is you know kind of like a, a rape revenge exploitation thing. Interestingly enough, produced by Sean S. Cunningham. Uh, so I, I really wanted to see that those two guys who who were big in the plaster uh and one of them's talented in the famous rip off, but that's beside <laughs> the point. Uh, but the thing with Wes Craven is he always pulled his his story ideas and his movie ideas from real real things or like actual fairy tales and stuff. And he talked about like being in, kind of influenced by Hansel and Gretel because uh, that was the original idea to so, like a horror version of that. And I can't I don't see it on here, but my dad always told me that there was actually like real story like story about like mutant people not in the uh, desert after able to do the testing. Uh, so that inspired a lot of these, you know, cannibal films. I can't believe that that's like a genre that means cannibal films. Not, nothing could surprise me, though. I mean, if there's something that 
probably a genre. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it definitely appeals to like a sense of fear of you know consumption and the fact that we humans could be consumed by something. It's horrifying if it could be another person, certainly. Yeah, well, speaks of something primal. Mm-hmm. And when the old man is giving like the backstory about how he had one kid, you know, and like you know, it was a baby girl and she was beautiful, like perfect. Uh, and then several years later, they tried again for a second baby, and it was this like scary monster man that was like twenty pounds and hairy, <laughs> and basically a mutant that came out sideways. Um, it was it sort of is interesting because. They don't really say it, but the nuclear testing was probably related to that mutation and how, you know, the, the neighborhood that they were living in was once, you know, perfect and fine. And now it's all derelict and gross. And that sort of mutation from one thing to the next was probably birthed with like that mutant baby. And uh, I don't know. I think there's like something that Wes Craven's maybe trying to get off his chest or say something about how um, like small towns are like changing and the way they're kind of used to just, you know, like cannon fodder by like testing and, um, you know, the people who are like in the military are trying to, you know, produce weapons or like government or whatever, like doesn't care about their citizens. And there's something like really kind of nihilistic and um, kind of like downbeat about that, that I think is pretty in line with something like that Craven probably, you know, his line of work kind of follows that, I think. Yeah. Uh, hey, Noah, thanks for copying by me. Always good to see. Um, yeah, I never picked up on how subtle it is in this movie because I, I have kind of the remake in my mind because I've seen it quite a few times. I saw that in theaters, actually. Uh, and that's a lot less subtle about it. Like, they just come out and say, oh, this is a good testing. Stuff like that, which is fine. Like, yeah. the, the movie is like, the remake is shot for shot, this movie, because they're a lot. I appreciate it because it, it helps delving concept. Uh, and they get a little more creative with something. Uh, so I, now I'm curious, because this is the first time Milton has not remembered a movie. Was it yeah, that it, boring? I don't know what it was about, because I've seen old movies, and I've seen like, you know, old exploitation horror before. You know. And there was something about the antagonist to me that just didn't seem very intimidating as compared to some of the other films that we've seen. And I saw like people under the stairs first before I saw this one. And I don't know, there was something about these, I guess something about these can- cannibals seemed mundane and I guess it didn't hold my interest, I guess as much. But then again, that I think is a matter of taste in some ways. I'd be interested to see what you think of the But uh, one of the things that I did find interesting was the fact that in some ways it seemed more intimidating, this Nevada desert during the day rather than during the night. And that's even despite the crucifixion scene, which is definitely very brutal. Uh, It's just it's just more of like the last third that I just don't remember very well, unfortunately, mostly because I was like in and out and sleep for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe it was some of the pacing because it's definitely not a it's definitely not a quick start. At the beginning, it's definitely a slow burn, but it def- but it gets gradually uh, more and more involved. Um, it was definitely interesting seeing the order of the ca- characters' deaths, because um, as you as you said, yeah, normally babies captured, usually a horror convention is the mother is the person that would go after it in some like revenge rescue quest or something like that. 
But now it happens that the people who are absent during the presence of these mutants are those who are more likely to survive, which is interesting. Just to say, I mean, about the three, it's a very supremacist execution. Well done. Uh, R.I.P. Wes Craven. He was, he was a mutant. He'll pull himself sometimes, but... <laughs> Uh, have, you, have you ever like looked at interviews with him? I have not actually. <laughs> he, uh, I have the the like making of Friday the Thirteenth face man, Freddy documentary. He's like, yeah, I didn't even Freddy the face man. There, there's nothing in that watching. <laughs> it's great. And he knows this because he hasn't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And well, um, what you were talking about, um, Milton, was was interesting because um, you were saying that there was something about the antagonist wasn't uh, grabbing you, and I think part of that is because um, a lot of this movie is about savagery. And when you were talking about uh, earlier, John, is that you know you, the, a '70s audience is not willing to accept certain things, and um, I, this movie struck me as very similar to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which mm. I don't know if. You guys, I, I, I'm sure John has seen that. I don't know if you've seen that, Milton. I have not seen it yet. It's on um, our list, though. That movie is like watching a nightmare. Like, I think it is the scariest horror movie that's ever been made. Like, I love it. But I've also seen, like, clips from the remake where it is just so aggressive and in your face. And everyone's like, <laughs> and, like screaming and all that. And, um, and so uh, I, I kind of, that makes me like I'm a giggle a little bit when I, when I think about it. But with that, like, um, there's like a kind of a helplessness and like people trying to escape an isolated area in that movie. And that's a similar thing here. This is here, right? Okay, cool. Um, You're back with us. But yeah, you saw you saw uh, Chonker Nielsen there probably for a second. Um, it's my little <laughs> uh, Discord avatar. But um, but with with this though. I think maybe I would be interested in watching the remake, John, because seeing how something in that era is, you know, more like you're allowed to be more aggressive and like savagery, you know, there's like a, a, a tolerance for that in the zeitgeist that wasn't there 30 years prior. So mm -hmm. I would be interested in checking that out. I like the director. All right. The Alexandra Aha Asia, whatever his name is. But um, yeah, one thing I do like about this movie, though, is. I think there is like some kind of foreshadowing that the movie I think is maybe trying to say something. Maybe it is just an idea and they're not trying to say anything at all. But uh, so they have two dogs, they have beauty and they have beast and beauty dies almost instantly. And then beast, uh, by the way, easy pick for a top five movie dogs. I love beast beast gets it done. All right. Now there's some, there's some like connective tissue between hills have eyes and people under the stairs. One of which are very involved dogs. So, um, but yeah. like, beast, uh, but obviously, like you know, within humanity, there's beauty and there's beast, and when beauty goes away, you know, they become more savage. But um, the uh, beauty is a lady, and she dies very quickly. And what I notice is, like, during that scene halfway through the movie, they take out almost all of the ladies like immediately. Like, D. Wallace, bam, you're dead. Mom, bam, you're dead. Um, uh, not Sybil Shepherd is like raped. Like it is a really upsetting scene where it is like, mm -hmm. oh my god, like what's gonna happen? And then so Cop Dad is kind of taken out, but then Mustache Dad and Luke Skywalker and uh, Brandy, who does get to stick around for the rest of the movie, 
thankfully it's not like she just you know disappears uh but you know they kind of have to step up and take on new roles and like find their inner savagery in order to take it out and i think that kind of plays all the way out to the final shot where you see like mustache nick cage looking guy like stabbing into the camera and his like spits getting on the on the lens and it's really kind of nasty and uh like sleazy and i was all there for it it's one of those scenes that make you go god i love the 70s it's up there with the part in star wars where they're shooting everybody in the containment center or at the beginning of dawn of the dead where they're just shooting and yelling and everyone's firing and it's all loud i'm like yes the oh, 70s <laughs> i love that apartment building see the dawn of the dead oh it's crazy um, my final thoughts are just shout out as well to the poster. I love the poster for the original movie where it's just that guy like staring into your soul and like guys yeah, the hills have eyes. I miss when movie posters were like green. Yes. It's not so, just floating heads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the last thing we always do before we move on to the next film is give it a score out of five. Excuse me, the letterbox system. Uh, I'm going to stick with what I put on letterbox and give it a 3.5. I would also give it a 3.5. I will also give it a 3.5. I need to see it again so I can actually, you know, stay conscious for, like, the last portion of it. I think it was just that the time in which I was watching it was probably... I probably just wasn't ready for the full thing. So, um, just a tentative score, which I would probably change later. Stay away from the fucking movies! <laughs> All right, and now for the most un-West Craven, West Craven movie I think I've ever seen. Uh, and this was Connor's pick. I'm going to let him tell us about The People Under the Stairs. Okay, so The People Under the Stairs follows uh, Poindexter Fool, as he is called regularly. He has just turned 13 years old, and his family is about to be evicted from their tenement. And uh, this tenement, they are the last family uh, that is staying there before they get evicted. But once they get evicted, the landlords are going to tear it down, turn it into condominiums. And the landlords are played by Everett McGill and Wendy Roby from Twin Peaks. Uh, they were actually cast because of Twin Peaks. And um, uh, they are, so they're the landlords. And then one of Dexter's sister's friends, Leroy, played by the always amazing Ving Rams, uh, is a local thug. And he says, you know what, kid, I'm teaching you a trade. We're going to go rob that house because inside that house are some gold coins. And from there, they get inside the house and they can't get out. And so that's basically the premise of The People Under the Stairs. Uh, I'm very excited to know what you guys thought about this. You were very right to compare it to a Spielberg film. That was definitely the vibes that I was getting throughout this thing. Um, it's definitely also very interesting because I think it plays with the horror genre because it knows what the horror genre is, what people's general expectations are. You call a movie, the people under the stairs, you think that they're the main threat because it's these weird people that live under the stairs, but they're actually more just victims, honestly. And they're not really the main source of uh, danger that uh, Poindexter has to face throughout this movie. It's the people who are above the stairs that aren't. Yeah. It's, a, it's definitely interesting to see how it kind of plays with... It subverts expectations in a way that is actually conducive to the writing of the movie. Yeah. I just have to say the 90s may be West Craven's like best period of directing films ever. Uh, this 
Uh, New Nightmare came out three years later. Scream, Scream 2, like those are all fantastic movies. Uh, but like I said, this is the most un-Wes Craven, Wes Craven movie I have ever seen. Uh, <laughs> in a good way. And it, it kind of reminded me, because it's, you know, people like trapped in a house, so it's like, it's kind of full circle, because his first movie was The Last House of Left, which I don't know if you guys have seen. I know Milton probably has But I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, but I that is a... That is a another like exploitation grindhouse movie about a bunch of criminals who are stuck in the house of the people whose daughter they raped and killed, and the parents decide to get revenge. So like, okay, so he's going back to the people stuck in the house, but making it more a third, which I guess is the only thing I can think of to say to describe this movie. Uh, and I I loved it. This this might be a new favorite from from West Craven. Not my favorite, but a new thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I really like this movie too. Honestly, uh, yeah, th- there's quite a bit that I could say about this movie. It's got great production Oops. design. Um, it definitely goes along with the theme of like being a prisoner within a situation. The people who are the most likely to be prisoners in the movie are actually the antagonists because they're trapped in their own insanity <laughs> with their own minds, and because they're so beholden to their secrets, they almost never leave the house at all. And they just, they want people to be prisoners there with them because they feel that they're stuck there. Definitely goes along with a very interesting theme about who's truly trapped, those who are, you know, poor or those who are rich. You know, does wealth actually free you? Mm-hmm. It, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not completely clear. It's interesting because um, uh, with uh, the last movie and with this one, I really like the way Wes Craven does world building and the way uh something like exposition plays into it because what i when i first heard about this movie i think it was in elementary school somebody said oh have you ever seen the people under the stairs and i went no i don't know what that is and they didn't tell me anything about it and so i thought oh it's a movie called people under the stairs in my head i had this picture of a kid moves into a house with his parents and oh there's something spooky living under the stairs and you know, he tries telling his parents about it, but they don't listen to him. And then maybe he's got a crush on the girl who lives next door and they team up to go look for the people living under the stairs or whatever. And, and I that's will a movie say, that would be made today, honestly. Yeah. Just for it's an adaptation of Goosebumps Blood. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and then, you, you know, you look at the poster and I think this has one of the most misleading and maybe worst posters ever um where it's just like a skull over a house and you're like okay what is it you know like you, like that's i think it doesn't really say like, anything it looks cool but it says nothing about the and movie. you watch it and it's about crazy people crazy inbred siblings that that kidnap children and then if they don't like you know adhere to their hyper like religious or crazy version of reality they chop off their tongues or gouge out their eyes or cut off their hands or whatever and then turn them into cannibals by throwing them under the house and anytime any and, they, and it's like the like the main thing is leroy's like all right fool we gotta go break into this house to get some gold coins <laughs> like that sounds like a spongebob plot like it's great and uh oh we gotta go get those gold doubloons spongebob okay mr Krabs, let's do it and then it's like squidward's house or something you know so it's like uh something yeah it's absurd and i'm honestly a little surprised this is not as 
popular as I thought they might be. Like, it doesn't have as big of a cult following as I was maybe expecting. Because um, tell me if you guys, like, get this vibe from it. I would expect this to be, like, really popular with, like, like the geek girl side of things where, you know, like, when like, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of guys, too, a lot of guys, but uh, mm-hmm. primarily ladies, when I was, like, in middle school, really into something like Tim Burton, right? It's like a fairy tale, ooh, but it's dark and twisted, ooh. And then everyone grows up and realizes Tim Burton's not actually that great, and, uh, okay, you know, and then people graduate to something like David Lynch, or, you know, they graduate into, you know, like, horror movies and slasher stuff, and I'm just a little surprised that I don't see, because this does, because a lot of, like, ladies I know, again, like, 30% of, like, guys, too, I know, are really into, like, Disney, because they grew up loving Disney, or they love, like, old movies, like, adventure movies and stuff like that. This has the vibe of, like, a children's movie, but the aesthetics of an R-rated horror movie, and there's something kind of subversive and, like, fun about that that would kind of scratch a sort of itch that's like kind of childlike and I don't know what it is, but I really find that appealing. And I was, I almost expect the, you know, girls who grew up liking like Disney or whatever, who were like also into Tim Burton when they were in middle school would like this because it's sort of like dark twisted fairy tale, but, but you know, not, it's, it's more of the horror Mm. version of that. So that's just something about this movie that I've kind of had on my mind for a few years. Um, I don't know if I'm just kind of alone on an island with that. No, I don't I don't think you are. I think one of the reasons why this film doesn't get as much recognition as it does is because, one, a lot of people of our generation don't really watch Twin Peaks, don't really understand what it is. So from a casting perspective, you don't get a whole lot of that. Ving Rhames kind of had his heyday, hasn't had a whole lot of recognition nowadays, although he is a great actor. Um, there's also the fact it's a horror movie, in the 90s, not exactly sure. It's like a toss of whether or not it would get a lot of recognition, especially from a younger crowd, even though it could, it is very accessible to a younger crowd, I think, despite its horror elements. Um, so it's a Wes Craven movie. Wes Craven's not exactly popular with families for various reasons because of his pedigree of working with stuff like, you know, Freddy Krueger, The Hills uh-huh. Have Eyes. Suddenly you watch a movie that, although it has Spielberg-like elements, it's not exactly going to be a, a banger with uh, families. <laughs> it's, I guess, maybe from a perspective of why maybe some female, it had, doesn't have as much of a female audience for it. It's because Maybe it's because she's not the main character exactly. Maybe it's because it's more of she's a victim that needs to be saved, but she does. That formula is turned on its head as it goes around and she is able to save herself and actually take agency because i guess there's like a level yeah yeah no there's a level of innocence to the main character and to alice the sort of somewhat damsel in distress character um because once fools there they have a daughter to anyone watching who maybe hasn't seen it uh um but like there's like a level of innocence there that is sort of charming and that i think does make it feel the most like spielberg Spielbergerian, uh, is that how is that how we say that? Um, Spielbergian, Spielbergian, yeah. But uh, because like there's a part where towards the end, uh, Everett McGill as like the man, you know, like hmm. daddy or whatever he is, you know, he he says, I I I know he did it with our daughter, and it's like he's like a 13 year old kid, you know what I mean? Like he's he's probably like barely made it in the middle school, and. Um, there is like a level of innocence that they don't expect because they're horrible racist like 
you know, classist, inbred. all kinds of yeah, yeah, inbred to hit like crazy people. So um, I don't know. I think like, again, that level of innocence does sort of make it like more accessible. I think uh, you were saying like it is a little, like, it's a pretty accessible movie. And I think that might be why. Yeah, not where nowhere anywhere near complicated his. Uh, I think it's just the time that it came out. Uh, mm-hmm. Horror was in a big slump at the time. Uh, you were coming off the eighties. Slashers were dead and buried for the most part, and we were still four, five years away from Creed, which was the next big like horror movement. Uh, and we're you know three years before New West Craven's New Night. Yeah, so it just came out in a time where like horror was kind of dormant. Uh, and so like it, and like it was semi popular when it came out, but it came and but it came out in such proximity to the next big thing in horror that I feel like it just kind of got lost. So, okay. Because uh, Green was <laughs> like it's very yeah, omnipresent. It, yeah, I mean, and Wes Craven, one of my favorite things about him is just how many times he reinvented the entire job. Because, mm-hmm. like, Nightmare on Elm Street was a pretty flasher. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I remember very shortly after Wes Craven died, like, it was not even a week after, um, Robert Englund and a couple of the actresses from that first um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie, they, they, uh, we're at comic con in, in, in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, I went to a screening of, uh, uh, the first nightmare on Elm street. And afterwards there was a Q and a with Robert Englund and the lady who plays Tina, the first victim of Freddy Krueger, um, whoever she was. So we had a Q and a with them afterwards. And I was, uh, on the geek Evolution who reviews the reviewers competition doing a review for new nightmare. And so it was really cool to hear a lot of those behind the scenes stories. And I guess Robert Englund like kept in touch with him like throughout a lot of those years. And so it was really neat to hear about kind of the way he was always coming up with ideas to try to do something new, because I guess he realized you had said it earlier, John, that he didn't really want to stay a horror director. He wanted to do other things, but I mean, your name's Wes Craven. <laughs> like, that's like a name for horror. And so he had to just keep getting creative with, if he, this was just what he was going to do, he had to like come up with ways to keep himself invested. And I think that, you know, shows in something like The Hills Have Eyes and something like this movie and even something like New Nightmare, they're all kind of doing something different. I guess I could call it adventure horror, I suppose, for this particular mm-hmm. film. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. His final movie, of course, was Scream 4, and I think that is the best Scream sequel. Uh, of course, it's not better than the first movie, but like, it's crazy. Just even towards the end of his life, he was still making like big hack. Uh, yeah, and making fun of, of reboots. And the thing I love about Scream 4 is I feel like he had to be alive for a very certain period of horror, from like 2003 to 2009, where all you had was like. Nightmare on Elm Street remake, Friday the 13th remake. The Scream 4 is just mocking. <laughs> Great. The Platinum Dunes era of horror. Yeah. <laughs> Taking it yeah. down. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing I really like about this movie is that it's not subtle at all. It's very goofy and silly, but it's not stupid. 
And that's something I think gets mistaken quite often is when something's silly, a lot of people will say, oh, then it's, it's kind of stupid. And I think that's, that's fair. A lot of silly things are probably kind of stupid. And I still love them. You know, I, I can love stupid stuff too. But uh, what I like here is that there is a, um, you know, uh, a message that you can track from beginning to end, you know, about like wealth disparity and how uh, something like gentr- gentrification happens and uh, class warfare, like the way like all that is sort of played out. And, you know, it's not subtle. It's very kind of simplistic. It's sort of like like a fairy tale. Um, and then, like, at the end, you have your sort of distribution of wealth moment where they literally blow up a house yeah. and and money comes raining from the sky. And, and rap like, music <laughs> plays and, or hip-hop plays. At the yeah, end. this is <laughs> the right thing. I'm talking about it, the black and white thing. That was, it, it's it, very blameless with what it's saying, certainly. This, this felt like if you took George Romero, Sam Raimi, John Carpenter, and Wes Craven, and they all, like, threw in creative ideas to make a new uh, yeah, this movie beats you over the head with it, but in a fun way, kind of like you know, a dawn or day of the dead, because they're not trying to be subtle, like this is what they have to say. Um, and I appreciated that this movie could be as out there as it is. I mean, you have a guy dancing around in like a BDSM suit, <laughs> singing, I got him, I got him. Yeah, a guy in a gimp suit has a Spas 12 and he's shooting the entire house. It's like, what? And a shotgun that he, I never see him load. So he just has an unlimited <laughs> amount of shells in this entire see, see, that was like the part of this movie where it's like, it just shows you its hand. Because like you're watching, you think you know what you're watching. Okay, a spooky house movie. Okay, got it. And then Alice says, she's holding her doll and she's like, you know, she got loose. He's in the walls. And daddy hugs him. Cut. Here comes Everett McGill to Gimpson. You go, yeah. Whoa! What am I like? Every time I show this to somebody, they go, "What?" <laughs> and it's like that moment that catches you off guard. And it's yeah, if you ever wanted the theming to be obvious, the villain himself is in a bondage suit, so showing that he's yeah. he's more of a he's more of a prisoner than anyone else is inside of his house. And yeah. and they kind of they talk about that when uh, Grandpa Joe, I think that's his name, Grandpa Joe, is giving you the backstory about them, and he's like. Oh, that brother sister actor. You're, they mean business. Like, oh, brother and sister. And they say, you know, the 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 more money they got, the greedier they got, and like the, the more money. They got. Yeah, and so it's just kind of interesting where you think usually you'd think you know if you'd be greedier to have more money, and then once you got more money, you'd be less greedy. But that's not the way it plays out. And because he has like all of that money, and he just wants to like, he's basically a hermit and a shut in, like you said, uh, Milton. Yeah, and it's yeah. It, it, it's. It's like in a D&D situation where, like, an older member of this party or something like that brings in the younger guy, the talent, so that we can rob this dragon's horde of sorts. And it turns out the dragon has, like, no need for wealth, but he doesn't want to give it away. Mm-hmm. It's basically this, this codependent relationship of things that, have, that in of itself have no logical connection, but despite that, they're still bound, bound together. That's a cool reading and one I never actually really thought about because you comparing it to like a dragon is you're right it um, it does have like that you know Smaug is a very you know lecherous um, uh, you know dragon and and the the Hobbit where or avarice or whatever whatever the word avarice is is what you yeah yeah lecherous is very different but and the man is but they are so lecherous certainly and usury it's. Mm 
It's like it's like every bad thing you could put in an antagonist and just put them into one per two people specifically. You know, the the bad men, the bad women, put them together in this terrible concoction, and yeah, it was so satisfying to just see them die in this movie. <laughs> What did you guys think about? Because I think there was a lot of really fun comedy moments in this. Um, I don't know if there was any moment in particular that jumped out to you, but this movie makes me laugh the whole way through. And it, it's one—it's like the Sam Raimi or Jordan Peele thing, where they like Wes Craven understands that like being scared and like laughing kind of comes from the same place, where um, you know a jump scare can get you, but it can also make you laugh. And that's kind of a lot of the jump scares. You know, they go, oh, that, that was a jump scare, but it wasn't, it doesn't make you roll your eyes because it's a gag as well. And it kind of makes me laugh. So, just to rewind it a little bit, I went into this completely blind. This is the only Wes Craven movie, one of the few Wes Craven movies I never even heard of. Uh, but I knew something was up, not in a bad way, but from the very beginning, because the whole premise of this movie is they, if they don't pay their rent within three days, because they're, they're just now past due, but they have three days to pay triple their rent or they have to get out. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I'm not an expert, but that's not how that works. No, that's criminal. That's but what sold me on this movie is the first big case with the dog when they're in the living room. And he drives Big Graves across the, like, front room. And Big Graves has the dog, like, attached to his wrist. And he just grabs the electric doorknob to shock all three of the time. It's like, that's not oh, good. It's really, it was really funny, though. That's what told me exactly what I was in for. So I was like, okay, I'm in. And then the dude in the gift dude showed up, and it took me to, like, another level of, what am I in? <laughs> I love the part when the kid is, like, you know, he's trying to, like, brace the dog inside of, like, a little trap door. He's like, man, what are they feeding you? And he, like, burps up the other guy's ring. <laughs> it's like, what? Oh, that was so good. For, for me, what left, and this is more in retrospect, because there is that, which I think is just, that's when the comedy bit, like, really sets in of what John described. But for me, what makes me laugh, Spencer didn't die from, like, any other wounds or, like, from a dog or anything like that. He died from just being scared of the people <laughs> under the stairs. And that, to me, is probably the funniest thing about it. It's just in hindsight. <laughs> You thought that sucker was white before. You should see him now. <laughs> By the way, that guy looks like a concoction of a few other people. He looks like Jake Johnson from like New Girl and Jurassic World and other stuff. Comedic actor man. He also kind of looks like Wes Craven. And so it's it's just kind of funny to see him show up. Uh, but oh man, uh, one of the the one of the gags that I would because you're right the, the the shocking all three of them is like a Looney Tunes gag. It's great. Um, but Ving Rhames has so many great one-liners in this. Like, when they're talking, like, maybe Spencer's in there, you know, looking out, and then he looks at the kid, and he says, maybe the, sec the president's gonna make me secretary of pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Ving Rhames' character is such a screw-up in this movie. It doesn't take yeah. about a few seconds to think, oh yeah, Spencer's betraying us. It's, he's been there for a few seconds. <laughs> you know what the plan is. <laughs> I, I if there was one thing I would change about this movie, I wish he'd been in it. Because when he died, I was really like, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, no offense to the kid, but like Ving Rhames, it's Ving Rhames. Like, make him yeah. the <laughs> I, I, I slightly disagree, and the reason why is because I was. The, we had already established, you know, the main character for this movie. If Ving Rhames survives, it's like you have this continual thing of, oh, we can always rely on him for, for a strong, you know, support character. Taking yeah, him out it's... of the movie allows the protagonist to kind of like show his ingenuity and his, you know, resolve throughout the movie. Which I think it does very well. And yeah, but it's being rings. <laughs> yeah, like you want to see strength being rings and like Dawn of the Dead well, remake. I think Milton's hitting it on the head because I think one of the things I like the most about this is it is a coming of age movie. Um, you know, early on they talk about how you're a fool, but not the stupid kind, the ignorant kind. And so if he always has a Ving Rhames to rely on, then, you know, he can't really actualize and kind of take control over the story. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, what's great about Ving Rhames is he doesn't, he doesn't outstay his welcome. You, you love him. And when he's gone, it, it, it's sad. But and, and honestly, like, you know, him dying is like end of act one. Uh, and one thing I will say to that point, uh, I guess I'm going to change subjects a little bit here, is I really like the pacing of this movie. It's really fast, but when I was first watching this, what kind of got me on board really quickly is that they're staking out the house and they're talking about breaking in another day. So you're thinking, okay, we're watching the stakeout. We'll have our like meeting where we like break down the plan, Ocean's Eleven style, say here's who's doing what, who's doing what, who's doing what, and then we'll come back again, and then we'll. But that doesn't happen. Like when they're staking it out that's when an impromptu break-in happens. And that's when a lot of the movie is, um, is like, jumped in on, is, like, right there. Like, Act 1 isn't getting ready to break in. Like, in Act 1, we're already in the house, like, hiding and figuring stuff out. And I think that's a lot of fun and, like, subversive in a way that is exciting. Yeah. So, and this just popped up in my head as well, because we were talking about, you know, this is very much a lesser known West Craven movie, you know, like, Lesser than at all. Uh, but I wonder if this and the original Candy are our big influences on Peel, on Jordan Peel. Uh, so I was reading that he's supposed to be producing like a TV reboot of this, which made me oh. roll my eyes. Uh, I don't know. On TV? Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if this premise works for like a TV show, but maybe. I was reading that Wes Craven, shortly before he died, was trying to develop a TV show on Sci-Fi Channel. Um, but yeah, no, I think this would be cool as like a comic book miniseries, like just different people who have broken into the house. But for for like a show, I don't know. I thought they were like he was producing like a movie remake, and if that was the case, I was excited because, I mean, I've often joked if I was ever given the opportunity, Connor Nielsen you are going to remake a movie, what are you going to remake? I would have said, oh, People Under the Stairs. Why? Not because I can add anything to it, but when you remake something, it gives more attention to that original, and I just want more people to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, the other thing I, I just thought about as well, because, yeah, I agree this is a coming-of-age story, and one of my favorite parts that was played more for serious was the relationship between Fool uh, and... That's just <laughs> Alice. Uh, but, and Alice. I thought they really worked well together. Uh, and it, I, I've, I've wondered now, wondering now as well if, because uh, I'm a big fan of the first babysitter movie on Netflix, which is kind of a similar thing about the community where a kid has to deal with us to almost with, deal with like a crazy human threat that's trying to kill him and he's locked in the house. 
What if that movie's looking at this too? Because it has the same kind of goofy tone uh, where you can't take anything seriously and it's on and up front of it. Uh, so I'm wondering if there's like movies, you know, that have been pulled from this, they just, you know, we don't know yet. Like, yeah, that 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 sounds plausible. Um, man, there's so much fun aspects of this that that do remind me of something like a Goonies, like in, where oh, like Alice is a, I think a really strong character. I like her quite a bit, and seeing her transform through the movie is really cool. Um, just little things like the way she stands; she always has like her hands up, and just little details like that make this movie feel so particular. I really like Roach. Uh, the sort of helpful uh, yeah. man in the walls um, and yeah I, I really like the way they kind of show off this world this this world of a house and all the little nooks and crannies and gags that they get out of it uh, like one of this kind of just another thing I really like about it is is like how little dignity is given to the human body in this movie Um mm. Like, you know, oh, Bing Rains is dead. We're going to have a moment. <laughs> no, they're gutting him. They throw him in an open sewer. And, oh, Roach, Roach got shot. Oh, oh no. Like, we're going to have that moment where we get a, you know, close his eyes and say a prayer. Nuh-uh. He gets thrown into a, he gets, he gets burnt. His, his husk gets burnt so they can, like, uh, smoke out the kids trying to escape through the vents. Like, it, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's weirdly kind of, uh, not nihilistic it's it almost adds like a shocking fun quality to it and uh i don't know there's something about the way like a dead body is just treated like any other thing that's kind of fun it really establishes the over the top nature of the villains it actually it almost makes you take take them seriously because especially and sometimes the weakness of a lot of these adventure movies is that we can't take the antagonist seriously because the protagonists have to survive in this movie, we don't feel that because just right off the bat, we show just how brutal and savage these characters are, and they're they're willing to do just about anything. But they all, but they don't. They also establish that the the main characters are smart enough to stay away and actually keep some distance between them and their attackers. So, yeah. Also, just worth pointing out, go back to having the scenes again. This is only one of three movies that he wrote in the nineties. The other two being Shocker and New Night. Uh, all the rest were him directing them. Um, Interesting. I would love. I would have loved to see him write more because I'm looking at his filmography and I love Wes Craven. But like, if you ever looked at his filmography, it's all over the place. Like, you've got Hills Have Eyes too, which I've heard is terrible. That he disowned it. But then you've also got like New Nightmare, which I think is one of the best. Like, it's right under Scream for for like meta slasher. Like, uh, it's very much a proto Scream. Uh, but I don't think. Out of everything that I've seen from him, I don't think he's ever written a script. It hmm. it feels influenced by the stuff that like Sam Raimi was doing in the eighties, uh, stuff Romero was doing. Uh, very out there, and it's not afraid of that. I feel like in under any other director, this would be like, yeah, we know we're like outrageous and silly, and like none of this makes sense, but we're sorry, like this is what we got. And he's like, no, you're either gonna like this or you're not, and that will make a movie. Uh, I love the fact that they're basically just zombies in the basement. Like the third <laughs> act, zombie. That glorious shot where it's a close up and you see him pulling the bayonet out. There's all this blood dripping off of it, and then 
Ah, oh, man, this movie's great. I love it. I love the production design you were mentioning earlier. Uh, Milton, like all the like the different rooms and the, they get really creative with uh, the house and all the... Yeah. I don't even think the geography actually makes sense if this is like the... Um, no, um, it, I don't really think it does. It doesn't matter. I think it, it looks cool matter. anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's way too much room inside this house. <laughs> when you look at it, it's, it's bigger on yeah. the inside than it is on the outside. Oh, some just break into the kitchen, I think, is a little ludicrous. But, you know, by this point, we're sold on this house being almost its own weird, strange dimension. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're so I think the audience is kind of sold on this and doesn't really think about, like, a detail like that. And it's not and it's not so game-breaking at the end of the climax. Because we do have established by this point that the protagonists have grown quite a bit. It's not as if their growth has been dependent on the presence of the people under the stairs in the climax by this point. So I wouldn't say it, it compromises anything. If I do have a problem with this movie, I do think mm-hmm. the ending goes on a little too long. Uh, specifically when um, like the people start knocking at the door and they could just shoot fool, but they have to have somebody knock at the door so that they can do the thing. So that, eh. and then, cause what ends up happening is anyone who came in the house just gets locked out of the house again. And then it's like, oh, what? Oh, it's, it's sort of like one of those things where I think a lot of the movie, like 99% of the movie does a really great job of being sort of like a Rube Goldberg machine where this affects that, affects this, affects that, affects this, and this person can't do this to that person because this is happening. And all these little pieces are in motion. And that's where I think the machinery kind of shows a little bit. And the characters might be just a little too bumbling in order for the kids to be able to get away or something so i would my problem with this movie ever so slightly despite the fact that i really enjoy it uh alice has a fantastic antagonist to set against like deuteragonist versus like deuterantagonist with with um her and the woman fool sometimes the man antagonist kind of lacks some depth to it that i think probably could have been there i mean Fool has still a great character development. The villain doesn't exactly, you know, match up in the way that it does for Alice. Which mm-hmm. I feel like if it, there had been a little bit more there, then it would have been a very great balance between the two. I can really see that, yeah. Granted, he's still entertaining to see on screen, oh. certainly. <laughs> yeah. So you don't get any lack of that. I particularly uh, like my brother Tim, by the way. Oh, what's up? I particularly liked his Jim Carrey impression when he's like, "Gotcha." I loved when uh, the other thing with the dogs between both movies is it also has dog dying, which you don't see a lot in in horror too much. Even even like a movie like Friday the Thirteenth, like you feel as many like teenage want with the dog off limits. <laughs> well, uh, Craven did a good job of establishing that. Yeah, these dogs are part of the antagonist. They're a tool to be used to kill people, which he establishes very quickly throughout the movie. So I think it's allowed. But uh, it just, it just, yeah. I mean, I agree. It doesn't bother me. Like you know, people get all upset like when you kill an animal in a horror movie. I'm like the horror movie, it's supposed to upset. Like. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely but he just like that in the hills of eyes, certainly. He just like takes a knife to his shotgun and just stabbing the wall. Um, I love the parts where it's a, it's amusing to me when you do have a person like 
yelling at their dog, like, kill, 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 and then before they throw it into the, they've trained it to kill. That's that's just kind of amusing to me. Yeah. And also, what you know, the other thing I love about this movie, especially with movies that are, are going to be crazy, like Evil Dead 2, this. The protagonist looks in, like, the real world. <laughs> and they, because, you know, whatever the conceit is, end up in this, like, crazy movie. So, like, the world itself doesn't feel insane. It's just these people in, like, their house is insane. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like this weird castle that you see in the distance, like, ruling over this peasant village. And, like, you have this, like, very established world in there. And then you have this, like, this haunted place that has this weird, strange power over everything that it's around. It's only when the people unite that the strange fortress can be destroyed. As you say, kind of like a fairy tale. Yeah. Uh, which is what made me think of the Carpenter film, because he's got a couple of, the, of his early movies that feel very fairy tale like. Uh, you've ever seen The Fog? That is very influenced by fairy tale. The whole movie is kind of supposed to be like a guy telling fairy tale story to people. Oh, interesting. I, uh, I feel like it's a requisite that I need to watch that movie because. <laughs> Takes place in Oregon, so I, I kind of gotta. Uh, how many how many horror movies do we have in Oregon? So, well, do we do we count the like direct to DVD movies? Because I'm sure I can find a handful. <laughs> People yeah. wandering around the woods. <laughs> that that's like every best of the worst movie. Yeah. yeah. How about a horror yeah. movie set in Portland? That would be interesting. <laughs> Oh, I think, oh, Green Room takes place near, they shot it anyways, right up in northern Portland, so. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. I actually know quite a few of the crew members on there. Uh, met really? Who at least cool. know who worked on it, yeah. That movie's fun. That's a good that, movie. That was a fun movie. I, I, I'll have to check that out. I'll have to check that oh, out. Was... Okay, there we go. No, I'm kidding. My mic is coming out, I think it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my overall final thoughts are just, this is a wonderful movie. Uh, it made me want to watch more Bing Rain movies and more Wes Craven movies because I realized I've only seen like the big, you know, Nightmare Scream, Hills Have Eyes. Uh, I really want to check out the original Last House on the Left because I'm curious about that one. I, I feel like that and Hills Have Eyes are probably his like grimiest, like, you know, exploitation movies. And then he got into the 80s and 80s has some of that exploitation stuff, but I feel like it was mostly like slashers. And we kind of got away from the like, this is like, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's sweaty. You know, the, the the prettiest people in your movie would be extras in a normal movie, you know, but they're, they're the leads in your movie now. You, you gotta watch Friday 13th Part 5. That one is pure exploitation, like, Brian built. Yeah. <laughs> That's the good stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, if I had to draft a top 25 favorite movies list, this would probably be on it, personally speaking. I've seen it so many times. The first time I watched it, oh, the first time I watched it, I uh, I probably would have given it like a 3.5, and then every time I watch it, I just like it more and more and more. So I'm giving it a 4.5. I love this movie. Uh, I don't think anybody on Earth loves it as much as I do, and that's okay, because <laughs> it, it feels like it almost like belongs to me, and it's my movie, and I love it. 
going to give it a four. I'm just slightly below you. That is also just a first viewing, and I could easily see this going up. Because this is the kind of tone I love for horror. When you're trying to be like super serious and like, aren't we scary? No, you're not scary. Like, just to stop, be fun, be entertained. That's you know, Romero figured that out. Remember, it was like Dawn and Day of the Dead, or two of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Because they're not trying to be scared. They're just scared. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is a top-tier West Craven movie that nobody talks about. I will also give this a 4 out of 5. It's weird enough how consistent our ratings have been throughout uh, both of the, this double feature. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend it just to any movie watcher. Which you can't really say about a lot of horror movies sometimes, but this one, this achieves a very good balance. So, uh, yeah, I highly recommend this to people, especially just, or maybe just people want to watch the adventure genre and wanted something that has a bit more uh, stakes to it, perhaps. Doesn't seem a bit, you know, sappy, but still direct. It doesn't really, it doesn't take a whole lot of thought. It's a nice uh, movie to watch with people as well. Oh, this would be a blast. We got to do this for a movie. Yeah, one of my favorite, some of my favorite experiences are showing this to friends and hearing their responses to the outrageous stuff, because you do have like the the when 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 Everett McGill first shows up in a gimp suit, that is like one of those moments where I just do the little side eye, check check out people's responses because it's always golden. Uh, But I will say, you know, the villains are kind of bumbling, but. There's that cleaning house sequence where, you know, he, the Alice is getting thrown into the bathtub with like the steaming water and. Uh, that that know. part made me cringe, especially. Yeah. That's horrifying and a terrible thing to do to a person. Yeah, and like you know, uh, fool is like is having to help drag Ving Rhames around and like gut him and it's like traumatizing for him. Like that sequence is like legitimately kind of like terrifying and. Uh, I think for, for a lot of that first half of the movie, the villains sort of feel a little distant, like we're kind of hiding from them. And that's a good sequence that kind of brings them into the fore, and you really get a sense that these are the antagonists of the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the bathtub scene made me cringe. It also made me think of like a Stephen King book. Oh, anytime yeah. you have like a, a teenage character, the parents are always sane people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, and I mean, oh, especially because the, the, uh, the first time you meet her and they're still kind of setting the tone, like the her first scene is like, where's the fork? Uh, you know, you're not supposed to like leave the over. I'm like, okay, what? Like, what? And then immediately they just move into like beating her. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then get like the, the racism stuff, uh, these and part of the message of the movie is like these the bad guys are like racist and like they look down on on black people and other well most mostly black people that's the one we mainly mainly deal with in the movie. The first time they dropped the N word, I was like, oh, okay, so it's this kind of movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think it was tastefully handled. Uh, Wes Craven knew what he was. Yeah. yeah, and I, some of that stuff, like when it does want to touch on serious subject matter like child abuse and, you know, racism and classism and all that stuff, it's like the movie knows how to make this stuff around that kind of goofy and quirky and fun and entertaining, but that stuff 
is serious. And so you never feel like the tone. I'll say this much. This movie handles tone. It juggles tone like a mime or something. It's very talented yeah. at juggling all the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But uh yeah, I think I think that's about it for today. We 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 had more to say about uh people under the stairs, but I think that's because it's a more entertaining movie, not only just to watch, but you know, to pick apart. Have fun with it. Um, so Milton, are you ready for the week next where nobody watches because nobody cares about these two movies? <laughs> uh, that's going to be the episode that I, I finally get Milton with. Um, but yeah, uh, Connor, thanks for hanging out, man. Uh, I did pick up the Grindhouse double feature, so sometime in the future with you know, that'll just be an episode because it's technically two movies. Yeah. Oh, I want that that box. So nice. Yeah, they have the. Uh, oh, it's so nice. And then you open it up. Yeah. And it, yeah. I so love it. I wouldn't say Death Proof is a horror movie, but uh, Planet Terror definitely is. Uh, <laughs> the, both of them, tonal, specifically Planet Terror, tonally is pretty similar to People Under the Stairs, I'd say. It's just very outrageous and goofy and uh, honestly, probably more overtly comedic, too. So, mm-hmm. uh, excited yeah. to watch this. I've been going through a bunch of things. You know, uh, so, but I'm saving those for whenever. So it's like, this is my first, you know, prep. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks you guys for hanging out. It's always been fun. Uh, other update I forgot to add at the beginning. Luke and I are almost done with Buffy season three. Uh, so that video could be coming soon. Hopefully. Um, just got to wait for him to catch up to the season finale. But, uh, yeah, we're going to head out of here. Uh, thanks again, Connor, for hanging out. And thank you, everybody, for watching. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for watching, everyone.